I love the digital revolution. But I tell you, as wonderful as my iPhone is, that's nothing compared to the ability to edit the genes of our children. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, Walter Isaacson tells me why CRISPR is more important than the microchip. On a cold December night in 2012, in a rented house in Carmel, California, Jennifer Doudna sat in bed typing furiously, only stopping to pinch herself to stay awake. Jennifer had rented the house in Carmel, intending to work on revisions for a molecular biology textbook. But now she was consumed by another project. She was racing to finish a paper. If she could do it fast enough, she knew she might guarantee herself a spot in the history books. A few months back, Jennifer and her team at Berkeley had made an oh-my-God discovery. It had to do with something called CRISPR. Here she is describing it in a TED Talk. So many bacteria have in their cells an adaptive immune system called CRISPR that allows them to detect viral DNA and destroy it. Part of the CRISPR system is a protein called Cas9 that's able to seek out and cut and eventually degrade uh, viral DNA in a specific way. Bacteria have been around for 3.5 billion years. They are everywhere, in our soil, in our bodies, in volcanic vents in the ocean floor. We depend on them to synthesize vitamin B12 to help us digest food. And now, in Jennifer's hands, they offered a pathway to change our genetic code. She and her colleagues had figured out how to program this CRISPR system to target and cut any spot, any gene, on a DNA strand. At the time, though, they were still only working with bacteria. They had a hunch that they could take what they'd found and use it on human cells. But they didn't know for sure until they had another breakthrough. And it was through our research to understand the activity of this protein Cas9 that we realized that we could harness its function as a genetic engineering technology, a way for scientists to delete or insert specific bits of DNA into cells with incredible precision that would offer opportunities to do things that really haven't been possible in the past. They could turn DNA from an etching on a stone tablet into a Word document, and they figured out how to use copy and paste. But they weren't the only ones. Fung Jang of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard had made a similar breakthrough in his lab. And to Jennifer's dismay, he'd already submitted a paper to the prestigious journal Science demonstrating the results. Which is why she was pinching herself to stay awake that December night in Carmel. She wanted to prove that she'd uncovered CRISPR's gene editing potential at the same time as her rivals. And she needed the world to know that this new frontier wouldn't be possible without her foundational research. After all, it was her team that figured out how to program CRISPR in the first place. That late night in Carmel paid off. Jennifer finished her paper with astonishing speed, but she wasn't fast enough. Fung Jang beat her to publication by 26 days. The race, however, was far from over. The two of them would eventually file for and receive separate patents for CRISPR gene editing technology. 
They're still duking it out. Hundreds of millions of dollars hang in the balance, which is actually a paltry sum when you consider what CRISPR means for humanity. Jennifer, her collaborators, and their rivals have given us a fantastic new tool, one that may allow us to hunt down cancer cells, deflect oncoming viruses, and eradicate genetic diseases like sickle cell anemia and Huntington's. But CRISPR has a dark side, morally speaking. It can be used, in fact, it has been used, to engineer babies, endowing them with desirable traits like strength and intelligence, opening the door to a host of ethical questions. What happens if we engineer away the diversity that has made the human species so remarkable? What if the power to create super babies belongs only to the very rich? Evolution has been driving us around for nearly four billion years. Do we really think we're ready to take the steering wheel? There's no one I'd rather discuss these questions with than my guest today, Walter Isaacson. After running Time Magazine, CNN, and the Aspen Institute, Walter's had a second act, maybe it's his third or fourth, depending on how you count, as this century's greatest student of genius. He's written biographies of Leonardo da Vinci, Ben Franklin, Albert Einstein, and Steve Jobs. He adds Jennifer Doudna to the mix in his latest book, The Code Breaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. His timing couldn't be better. A few months before the book's release, Jennifer and her collaborator, Emmanuel Charpentier, were awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for, as the prize committee put it, creating a tool for rewriting the code of life. And as if that weren't enough, RNA, which Jennifer has spent most of her career studying, plays a starring role in the revolutionary COVID vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, vaccines that more and more of us are getting. One of the fascinating things about Walter is that in the process of documenting the lives of some of the most extraordinary people in history, he started to see commonalities. And so this conversation is about more than CRISPR. It's about those commonalities. It's about how creativity works, how teams collaborate, and why we should all try to cultivate a spirit of playful curiosity. You're in for a treat. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Walter Isaacson, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. It's wonderful to have you with us. Hey, it's great to be with you. Well, Walter, to keep you on your toes, we thought it might be fun to have Michael Lewis say a few words about you. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) What follows is from an episode of his podcast, Against the Rules. As it happens, Walter and I went to the same high school in New Orleans. He was eight years ahead of me. Every couple of years, the entire student body of the Isidore Newman School would be herded into the school auditorium to hear Walter speak. There we were told, all over again, that we should all be a bit more like Walter. And every time, Walter had some new achievement. First he'd gone to Harvard, then he'd been a Rhodes Scholar, then he'd been the youngest editor ever at Time magazine. God knows if that was even true, but that's what they told us. Walter, was it true? Were you the youngest editor at Time Magazine? Oh, I think at times as I uh, was there, I was the youngest to reach different levels. I'm not absolutely sure. (laughs) Well, isn't it remarkable, though, 
that that you were this inspirational character for Michael Lewis, and the two of you would turn out to be two of the great American storytellers. Well, what was really nice is we used to argue about who was the person coming out of Newman that was the most famous, and then we got so badly eclipsed by Eli Manning and Peyton Manning that we can now be friends again. <laughs> now, I wonder, though, if there's something in the water in Louisiana. Do you think there's sort of a, a culture of storytelling that might have something to do with the two of you emerging out, out of that school? Or Yeah, we both had the same mentor, Walker Percy, the great novelist. Oh, and wow. uh, Percy once said to me, you know, there are two types of people come out of Louisiana, preachers and storytellers. And then he said, for heaven's sake, be a storyteller. The world's got far too many preachers. And that's what Michael does with his wonderful parables. I know he teaches moral lessons, but he does it through a storytelling style. And I've tried to do that as well. Well, your journey has been an interesting one from, from journalist to editor to head of CNN to running the Aspen Institute. And now you seem to be really avidly creating wonderful biographies. Another great American biographer, David McCullough, once said something about the biographer's craft that I found fascinating. He said, I don't think you have to love your subject. Initially, you shouldn't, but it's like picking a roommate. After all, you're going to be with that person every day, maybe for years. And why subject yourself to someone you have no respect for or outright don't like? And he kind of lived this by then. I think he abandoned a biography in progress on Picasso because I think he decided he couldn't really quite stomach Picasso as a long-term roommate. I'm particularly intrigued by his claim that at first you shouldn't love your subject, that you need some kind of distance. Has that been true for you? Well, definitely, but I also think the second half is right. You're spending a lot of time with a person, and you don't have to learn to love him, but you have to understand him or her. And that understanding has to have some empathy to it. And I know a lot of people who write biographies of people they can't stand, and I don't know how you get up and do that every day. For me, I have to find some admirable traits. Steve Jobs was the most interesting because I spent so much time with him, and he was such a rough character around the edges at times. But the more I spent time with him, the more I realized he drove people crazy. He drove mm. them to distraction. But he also drove them to do things that they didn't think they'd be able to do. And I came to admire him and actually like him and by the mm. end, love him. Yeah, I, I, I like this kind of point of view that to know someone deeply is to love them. It may take a lot of time, <laughs> right? But that, that, that everybody is, is lovable with enough knowledge. You know, Rufus, that's a really interesting thing. I'm going to quote you on that. Because we've lost that a little bit today. We're always mm -hmm. eager to jump down people's throats or to slam them on social media. And I think that as I drill down on the characters I've written about, some of them were not very good characters. Mm -hmm. But the more you know, you realize something very simple, which is they're human. And then you pause for a second and you say, and I'm human too. I mean, I just wrote a defense of Benjamin Franklin. People wanted to take his name off of a school down here in New Orleans. And I'd written a biography of him. And I said, yeah, he was not morally perfect, but he grew morally. He becomes the president of the Society for the Abolition of Slavery. Mm -hmm. But that's because he realized the error of his early ways. So I think you can learn to love somebody if you look at the arc of their moral growth. I had a lot of fun going back and reading the New York Review of Books and London Review of Books reviews of your different um, 
biographies. Hey, you got a high-class reading. Uh, you know, <laughs> well, most people look at the snippets in People magazine. You know, uh, I've, I've read them before, but they're they're so thorough. You know, it's almost like reading them again. <laughs> and of course, you get a little flack for being too smitten with Franklin. Do you think it's possible to like your subject too much? I try very hard not to sugarcoat, whether it be Steve Jobs or uh, Ben Franklin or Leonardo da Vinci, because it helps you to know that they were human, that mm, they had yeah. flaws, that they got depressed mm -hmm. or angry, or sometimes they were mean and regretted it. Sometimes people say, I read your Steve Jobs book, and I want to be just like Steve Jobs. And I say, no, biographies are not how-to books. You can yeah, find how-to yeah. books in another section of the bookstore. Biographies are about real people, and you got to draw mm -hmm. your own lessons. Yep, yep. They're, they're both how-tos and how-not-tos <laughs> in some <laughs> cases. Well, I think it's worth noting, too, that your books are not just about people. They're also about periods of human advancement. Uh, you seem to have a fondness for revolutions. You know, you had the opportunity to dig into the Renaissance through the life of Leonardo da Vinci, the American Revolution through Ben Franklin, the physics revolution in the first half of the 20th century through Einstein, the digital revolution that dominated the second half of the 20th century through Steve Jobs, and now you've turned your focus to the biotech revolution through the journey of Jennifer Doudna, where you say we'll treat molecules the way we treated microchips. And you suggest in places that this biotech revolution might be as consequential for the world as the tech revolution, if not more so. Oh, yeah. I think it'll be far more consequential. When I began writing the book, I said, okay, it's going to be as consequential. And then gene editing came along and a Chinese doctor was able to edit embryos of babies to create designer babies with inheritable edits. Then coronavirus came along and we had to use molecules and program them to make vaccines inside of our body. And I realized I was understating the case. I love mm. the digital revolution. But I tell you, as wonderful as my iPhone is, that's nothing compared to the ability to edit the genes of our children or to be able to conquer viruses uh, once and for all. So I think the first half of the 21st century will be a life sciences revolution, just like the second half of the uh, 20th century was a infotech, a digital tech revolution. It is astounding, and I know a lot more about it than I did a week ago, <laughs> now having, having read your Thank book. You. Well, you've done something really special for our Next Big Idea listeners, which is you put together three insights about the qualities that are shared by the extraordinary subjects of your biographies. So we'll get into these three big ideas, and also we'll get into some of the story of Jennifer Doudna, gene editing, and the future of the human race. Here's big idea number one. Be curious. Be passionately and playfully curious. The cool thing about this insight is we can all be this way. We're never going to quite be like Einstein and have the mental processing power to figure out the uh, equations of general relativity. And we may never understand microbiology the way my new hero, Jennifer Doudna, does. But like Jennifer Doudna, who used to wander around when she was a kid, looking at the sleeping grass in Hawaii and touching it and figuring out why does it curl up or the shells that she found on the seashore and wondering about the spiral. That was just pure curiosity and it reminded me of Leonardo who used to collect shells too and figure out the spirals. Why do they do that? Now when we're in our wonder years, we always ask these questions. 
up until some grown-up finally says, hey, quit asking so many stupid questions. But what we have to do is be like Leonardo da Vinci and Ben Franklin and Steve Jobs and Jennifer Doudna and not outgrow our wonder years. I remember stumbling across a notebook entry in Leonardo's notebook about why is the sky blue? And he does all these experiments, you know, spraying water in the air to try to figure it out. And I realized I'd seen the same thing in Einstein's notebooks. Why is the sky blue? Now, you know, you and I see the blue sky almost every day, but we've quit wondering about what makes it that way. But with Jennifer Downer, she did that. She wondered about the blue sky and about the green ocean and exactly what is life. And that's the insight I get from all of my people is just wander around and be curious. Ask about the obvious things around you. Isn't it incredible that the extraordinary people you write about, Walter, share curiosity clearly as a quality, but they're also curious about some of the very same things, the squirrels and seashells, why the sky is blue. It's so interesting because each of them were really curious as kids. So were a lot of us. But what interests me is that they never lose that curiosity. When Einstein was six years old, his dad gave him a compass, and the compass needle would twitch and point north wherever he turned the compass. And he was mesmerized. You know, nothing physical is touching that compass needle. So how does it happen? Now, you and I, you know, Rufus, we remember getting a compass when we were kids. And we go, oh, look. And then a few seconds later, a few minutes later, it's like, oh, look, a dead squirrel. And we're on to something else. But to his deathbed, Einstein is trying to create a unified field theory to figure out why does that compass needle twitch and point north. Likewise, Ben Franklin looking at the swirls of water in the ocean and then measuring the temperature and charting the Gulf Stream when he's 17 years old and going over to England for the first time. But what's amazing is when he's coming back and he's in his 70s, he's still doing that. Yeah, And that's, that's right. what Jennifer Doudna has too. I love the detail of da Vinci writing in his notebook as like a to-do list. Describe the tongue of a woodpecker. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, who gets up in the morning and says, I got to know what the tongue of a woodpecker looks. I mean, what do you do? Find a woodpecker, open its mouth? But that was Leonardo da Vinci. Every day, a to-do list of something he was basically curious about. But here's the key point. Basic curiosity often leads to useful discoveries. Jennifer was very curious about Mm. why are there clustered, repeated sequences, which we call CRISPRs, inside the DNA of bacteria. And after a while, they discover that it's the way the bacteria fight viruses. Well, that just seemed a pure curiosity Mm. until suddenly we start getting hit by viruses. And so curiosity can be very useful. But let me emphasize curiosity for its own sake, pure curiosity, playful curiosity, not for any purpose. That's where you should begin. That is, it's such a fascinating theme in the book that you really have to have this kind of, you know, basic science level curiosity, right? Of just trying to figure out how things work. But at the same time, you also have to, at some point in the process, have this inflection point where you ask the question, how, how can we make this useful? What, what can we do with it? The most interesting scientist I've never written about was Henri Poincaré, mm. who uh, at the time of Einstein was also trying to figure out relativity. 
And he said, the scientist looks at nature not because it's useful, but because it's beautiful. But then, sometimes, that beauty of nature turns out to be revealing and turns out to be useful. I think you open, actually, the second section of the book with that wonderful quote. The scientist does not study nature because it's useful. He studies it because he takes pleasure in it, and he takes pleasure in it because it's beautiful. Oh, yeah, you got the quote better this time. I didn't remember well, I, that middle part. <laughs> I, had the, I had the great advantage of having written it down. But, uh, <laughs> but I thought that, that, of course, we may need to revise that to she studies it because she takes pleasure in it, <laughs> and she takes pleasure in it because it's beautiful. Which leads me to, clearly, your curiosity is, among other things, a curiosity about humans. And I'm curious to know, what made you curious about Jennifer Doudna? My curiosity about humans is very simple, which is, what is creativity? How does it happen? Who does it? Who manages it? Because that's the human trait that's the most interesting. We all know smart people, but it's creative people that move the human race forward. And there's Jennifer Doudna with her basic curiosity, mm. but also a creative way of thinking. It comes from asking the big questions, like how did life begin on the planet? But it also comes from tying the big questions to a knowledge that God is in the details, that the tiniest ways that molecules fold or their shapes determine what they can do in biology. And so that ability to think different, as Steve Jobs would say, that's what draws me to people, whether it's Leonardo da Vinci or Jennifer Doudna. Part of what makes her story so interesting is that she overcame a perception that science is the realm of, of boys and men. Did you feel that that was a, an important part of the story? I didn't begin by thinking it was an important part of the story, but as you said, when I learned about what motivated Jennifer as a young girl, her dad had left on her bed the double helix. James Watson spoke about discovering the structure of DNA. And she was fascinated. It was like a detective story to her. Like, oh, the structure of a molecule tells us how we inherit our genes? Wow, that's amazing. But she also noticed in the book a character named Rosalind Franklin, who's treated rather dismissively by uh, Dr. Watson. He calls her Rosie, which she never called herself. But Jennifer told me, I didn't really mind or notice how dismissively she's treated. I was just stunned and amazed that a woman could be a scientist. Mm. So Jennifer goes to her school guidance counselor and says she wants to be, grow up and be a scientist. And she's growing up in Hawaii, and the school guidance counselor says, no, 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 girls don't do science. And it set her back a bit, but then she persisted. And so I write about her partly because she's just this amazingly creative and very influential scientist who made the most important discovery of our time. But I also realized that a sub-theme was overcoming discrimination or adversity, in this yeah. case, being a woman, whether it's because the women weren't invited to be part of the Human Genome Project sequencing DNA. So Jennifer and Jillian Banfield and Emmanuel Charpentier, her collaborators, all decided to focus on RNA, which wonderfully enough, mm -hmm. becomes more important than mm -hmm. DNA. Or when she's starting companies and all the venture capitalists are met. So that becomes a theme of the book, even though I just want to show her creativity from all of its angles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This makes me wonder whether 
some degree of, of adversity can be motivating. It's adversity and it's feeling a bit out of place, being a little confused about how we fit in. Jennifer was a tall, lanky, blonde girl in a tiny town in Hawaii where everybody else, all the other kids were Polynesian. And she said, how do I fit in? Leonardo, being gay and illegitimate and uh, left-handed, he felt he didn't know how he fit into the cosmos. All of us at times Mm -hmm. feel like a bit of an outsider. And I think creative people use that Mm -hmm. to develop a passion or a curiosity for saying, all right, how do I fit into this cosmos? Leonardo da Vinci does the greatest drawing of that ever, which is a self-portrait of himself, standing naked, doing like he's doing jumping jacks in the circle in the square of the cosmos and of the earth, known as Vitruvian Man. And he's saying, here's the science and here's the art, and it's helping me figure out how do I fit into this cosmos. If that was a self-portrait, he's he's definitely in better shape than I am. <laughs> he was doing those jumping jacks. Great, great, yeah, he great. was a very, very athletic guy. We think of Leonardo as an old man with a beard, but right. uh, that self-portrait of him shows you how athletic he was, loved uh, exercise, riding horses. Uh, he was a star. But that that is so interesting, though, that when we're when when we feel a little bit like an outsider, I think of like when when we're traveling overseas or somewhere else. We pay closer attention, right? I mean, I wonder if that might be part of it. It makes you more observant, and it makes you always ask the question, you know, what is my role here? How do I fit in? What is this cosmos in which we find ourselves? Well, your choice to cultivate your curiosity about Jennifer Dowd, and that clearly paid off. You you must have, have chosen her as a subject, I would imagine, before she won the Nobel Prize in 2020. And then we get hit with COVID-19, and RNA proves to play a starring role in the vaccines that are currently rolling out that I hope our listeners are, are, are getting right now. That must have been a, a kind of extraordinary surprise for you as you were writing the book that it would prove to be so timely. Yeah, I knew the book would be timely, but I sure didn't guess that with the coronavirus pandemic, we're fighting it off using, as you said, RNA as a wonder reprogrammable molecule. And also her winning the Nobel Prize with her research partner, Emmanuel Charpentier. But it was great because I was halfway through researching and writing the book, and these things began to happen. And it allowed me to make the book a real-time adventure story so that you're following along as things are breaking, news is happening. I hope it doesn't feel like a history where we're looking way back at things because I'm going hand-in-hand with her you know, at her laboratory is discovering things, being with her people as they turn their attention to the coronavirus, on the phone with her as she wins the Nobel Prize. And so it's a real-time adventure story that I didn't expect would be sort of that timely and that exciting. You know, I was halfway, two-thirds of the way finished the book by the end of 2019. And then as COVID hits, I said, okay, let me spend another year and a half because this book is getting even more exciting. Coming up after the break, Walter walks us through that adventure story. He gives us the play-by-play. We'll be right back. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. 
In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Could you describe the nuts and bolts of, of what RNA is and how it led to CRISPR and how that relates to the vaccine technology? I think, I think a lot of us probably need a little remedial education in, in how all that works. Well, as I said, DNA is the more famous of the siblings. But like a lot of famous siblings, it doesn't do a lot of work. It just sits there in the nucleus of our cell curating information. So it's a less famous sibling, RNA, that actually does real work, that actually makes real products. And there are two important things that RNA does. One is it acts as a messenger. It goes inside the nucleus of our cell, takes a little snippet of our genetic code, and then brings it to the manufacturing region of our cell and uses it to make a protein. Now, that protein can be a hair follicle or an enzyme or a neuron, or it could be a spike protein from the coronavirus. If we program in the RNA to say, all right, have our cells make a fragment of that spike protein. And that's what the vaccines do. It programs RNA to act as a messenger to make little parts of the spike protein. So if we get hit with a real coronavirus, our immune system is already primed. Another thing RNA does is it acts as a guide. So it can take an enzyme and guide it to a place in our DNA and say, chop it up, cut it right here. And so once we know how to program that guide, we can edit our own DNA. And that's what Jennifer Doudna and her colleagues discovered in 2012, how to program a guide RNA to edit our own genetic code. So with those two simple things, telling us how to edit our genetic code and then serving as a messenger, telling us what proteins to build, we can fight coronaviruses, we can create proteins that fight cancer, we can allow immunotherapies to work, we can fix genetic disorders like sickle cell anemia, and that is all this wondrous, simple, four-letter molecule called RNA, and Jennifer Doudna discovered how it works and the exact components of its shape, and in doing so, she answered with her doctoral advisor, one of the big questions in life. I mean, you talk about big ideas. One of the big questions is, how did life begin? And she showed how RNA also has the ability to replicate itself, to make copies mm. of itself. So about four billion years ago in the stew of chemicals on this planet, little those four little uh, letters of, R of RNA jostled together and soon they form molecules that can replicate themselves. You know, that's why RNA is the uh, best supporting molecule in the book. But it's Jennifer's curiosity about it and the simplicity of it that allows it to be so useful. 
And I understand that, that both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are RNA vaccines. I mean, part of what's extraordinary is, is that the Moderna vaccine, as I understand it, was created in one weekend, which is an indication that perhaps as we have new variants crop up, that this RNA vaccine technology will enable us to respond quickly. Absolutely. That's the really great thing about it, is it's reprogrammable. It gets back to our friend RNA. We can reprogram the RNA in molecules to make it do different things. We have now programmed RNA to build that spike protein. Likewise, over in Germany, BioNTech, which is now working with Pfizer, they were able to do it. So as these new variants come along, it'll take just a few days to reprogram it so we can have booster shots against the variants. And this means we've really turned a corner against viruses. We're now almost as good as bacteria. We can reprogram ourselves to fight each new wave of virus that comes along. You know, getting back to this theme of the balance between sort of curiosity for its own sake and what you call a desire to be useful, um, we see this in the story of Jennifer Doudna. She starts off really doing hard science, and then she, she hits a little bit of almost like a midlife crisis around, you know, is this what I should be doing? Maybe I should get an MD and, and help patients directly. Or, and she actually goes and works for a biotech company for a short amount of time. This question of this balance, right, between just broad curiosity and a desire to apply it to fixing things, it's something I think each of us in our own lives has to find that balance. And Jennifer, your, your, your protagonist, does so. Yeah, we watch her throughout the book as she tries to find that balance. But then she realizes that she can do it within the academic world with basic research, but she can form companies. So she forms a company called Mammoth to use CRISPR to fight genetic diseases. Mm -hmm. Forming a company is actually a way to apply your curiosity. So entrepreneurship is part of the next big idea whenever it comes along. And for Jennifer, there was an aha moment when in a test tube, she was able to reprogram the RNA of a CRISPR system to cut DNA at a specified target. She went, aha, that could be used as a gene editing tool. And so she applies for a patent, she forms a company, and that's what this book is about. Well, that is a perfect segue to big idea number two, which is really about this balance between knowing when to cooperate versus when to compete. Competition really draws us to do amazing things. Steve Jobs was a competitive person. You know, he fought like hell with Bill Gates, especially when Bill Gates tried to do that Windows operating system that Steve thought looked too much like the Apple graphical user interface. They got into lawsuits, they fought each other, and even Microsoft quit making some products for the Apple computer. But when Steve came back to Apple a little bit mellower in the late 1990s after he'd been ousted from the company, first call he makes is to Bill Gates, and he says, come down, we're gonna take a walk, do a handshake, settle our differences. And they do. Same thing happens with Jennifer Doudna's and her team. They got into an incredible race. It was like one of the great races in uh, scientific history, where in 2012, they were racing against a group at MIT and Harvard, including a wonderful guy named Fong Zhang, born in China and raised in Iowa. 
And they were all trying to say, how can we make CRISPR, which Jennifer Doudna had discovered the components of, but how can we now make it a tool that works in human cells, that can be delivered into human cells and can edit human DNA? And in January 2013, they both finished at about the same time. They both have gotten patents and they're still fighting the patent battle over that. Now, patents are important in some ways, uh, and patents are the way you get uh, rewarded for having discovered things. However, at a certain point, you got to just shake hands and say, let's quit fight divvying up the proceeds before we finish robbing the stagecoach. In other words, you know, let's make a deal here so that we can make this wonderful discovery something a lot of people can use. That's what Texas Instruments and Intel did on the microchip. And that's what I hope someday Jennifer Doudna's crew and Fong Jang's crew do on the patents that deal with CRISPR. But what they did do when coronavirus struck is both of their teams decided to apply their knowledge to how are we going to detect the coronavirus. Because all CRISPR is is something that bacteria have been using for a billion years in their fight against viruses. CRISPR is a way that bacteria take a mugshot of viruses that have attacked them in the past and they put them in clustered repeated sequences in their DNA, hence the name CRISPR. And so if that virus attacks again, they can chop it up. Well, that's kind of what we need in this day and age of virus attacks. And so what Jennifer Doudna and her teams do and Fong Jang's teams do is they say, let's all turn our attention to using these tools to fight COVID. And they put all of what they discover in the public realm. They allow other people to use it and build upon it. They don't try to get patents when it comes to using it to fight COVID. And they collaborate. They build on each other's research. One of the gripping elements of this book is this incredible kind of coexistence of, on the one hand, large-scale collaboration across international borders between different teams, but it coexists with pretty ruthless competition, <laughs> right? And, well, welcome to the real world, whether it's uh, journalism, the career I grew up in, or Little League baseball or whatever. Yeah. We all have to balance the ability to compete for the scoops or whatever, and to collaborate. Now, Jennifer is a very competitive person and a very collaborative person. So her story is quite inspiring. Mm -hmm. You know, she forms collegial groups better than anybody else. She's a magnet uh, for collaboration. But when she's in a race, she's going to win it. She's fighting really hard and, and sometimes very competitive. I do think that the fight for patents and to some extent for prizes like the Nobel Prize, poisons some of the cooperativeness that should be at the heart of science. Mm -hmm. And so in my book, I was thrilled when I watched that balance get restored, when suddenly it wasn't just about a patent for gene editing technology. It was about how are we going to save the human race from this pandemic? And everybody was reminded in a way that it's part of a noble calling the science that they do. And it's part of doing it not just for patents and prizes and priority of papers, but to help the human species and to help our fellow humans. And 
I think we all have to learn in life, and I hope this book is a good guide for knowing how to compete, but then also stepping back occasionally and saying, wait a minute, let's cooperate. It happens even among nation states. I'll give you a real quick example that's real important now. We're in an intense competition with China right now, militarily, economically. And so Secretary of State Tony Blinken meets his counterpart in Alaska a few weeks ago, and they have so much they're competing on. But I was in Washington, and we were talking about what are you going to put on the other side of the ledger about where we should cooperate. And so CRISPR, the use Mm -hmm. of genetic editing technology, was one of those things in which China and the U.S. have decided to cooperate on. Mm -hmm. So we have to use these things even when it comes to big geopolitical issues, but certainly in our science and in our daily lives, we have to know when to cooperate and know when to compete. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. You know, critical to this kind of balance between cooperation and competition is this question of how scientific advancement actually happens, right? Versus how we often uh, write about it in the history books. You know, there are many who have a view that in the process of telling stories about our sort of human progress, we, we tend to want to have clear protagonists. And so in a case like for instance, writing a book, it's a more compelling story with one person on the cover than with, say, a grid of nine people. Do you think that that in the process of telling stories, there's a temptation to make it too clear that it's one person or a couple people uh, accomplishing something opposed to a larger group? Yeah, I think we have to resist that, uh, those of us who write narrative histories, because just by the nature of a narrative, it follows certain people. And uh, we biographers have a dirty little secret, which is that we distort history sometimes by making it seem like some guy or gal goes to a lab or a garage or a garret and has a light bulb moment and innovation happens. And that's why uh, in this book, even though I use Jennifer Doudna as a person who holds my hand and holds the reader's hand and we go hand in hand through this uh, 30-year journey of discovery— I go to great lengths to have not only the other famous people like George Church and Fong Zhang and Emmanuel Mm -hmm. Charpentier and Gillian Banfield as very colorful characters in the book, but I also go to the graduate students who are actually doing the experiments. I have pictures of them in the book. Mm -hmm. I make them into the heroes of the book. And all of progress is a balance between sort of great liquid teams of people doing things, but also individuals who drive things forward. This is such a a delicate and important balance, isn't it, between the the collaboration and the competition? Because as you point out, you know, the patent conflicts between these two teams maybe resulted in, in it taking longer for the CRISPR patents to be employable On the other hand, it's quite clear that the competitive impulse is a major motivator. And maybe it's part of what got us vaccines as quickly as we've gotten them. Absolutely. Those people at Pfizer and Moderna wouldn't have worked all weekend if there weren't two things. First, a compelling need for humanity that they wanted to help. Mm -hmm. But secondly, a desire to be the first to come up with a vaccine. And when I was a journalist and when I was in business or am in business and I know that it's sometimes a race, and we want to win it. I do think that the patents distorted things. I think it went overboard, 
And I wish we could revise our patent laws because the patent laws tend to insist that a particular inventor be designated on a patent as opposed to webs and teams of people Mm -hmm. that actually do push things forward. Interesting. And would you expand the number of people who can receive the Nobel Prize, or do you think that's about right? I think that the Nobel Prize actually does more distortion than it does help uh, these days. Hmm. It not only is limited to three people, which I think distorts how innovation happens, Mm -hmm. but it causes people to compete for that prize, and it means they don't share their ideas as freely. Whether it's the patents or the prizes, the incentive becomes to keep your information private, not to share it with other people who may be racing to do something. And I'm going to say something heretical mm. that maybe uh, we'll have to edit out of this podcast interview. <laughs> okay. I think science might be better off if we didn't have so many prizes. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, that and reforming the patent law so it would be easier for people to collaborate in larger groups. Yeah, and let me make an editorial comment, which is Jennifer's lab succeeded extraordinarily because she was a talent magnet. So labs that become magnets for talent from around the world, all almost all these people who did the coronavirus vaccine, from Albert Borla, who's the CEO of uh, Pfizer, to Nubara Fayan, who's the executive chair of Moderna, they come as refugees to the United States. And so not only do companies have to be talent magnets and academic labs have to be talent magnets, but our country needs to remain a talent magnet, a beacon to people from around the world who can study at Berkeley and MIT and Harvard, get their graduate degrees, and then get a visa stamped onto their diploma or a staple to their diploma so that we keep that ability to attract great minds from around the world. You know, I'm reminded as we're talking about Steve Jobs, who was uh, not always so collaborative in his early years, but in the course of reading your biography of Steve Jobs, we get, we get a feeling that, that he evolved. And I think he says to you when asked what his best product was, that it was not the iPhone or the Macintosh, but it was building a team of people who could create such beautiful products. Absolutely. And one of the interesting things to me is how do people build teams? What principles mm-hmm. do they use? And sometimes you probably have on this podcast, uh, you know, people have books like The Seven Great Lessons for Creativity or the How to Be a Great Manager thing. And I don't think there are seven easy lessons. People do it in different ways. I watched Steve build that team, and he did it by celebrating creative conflict. He wanted people who would say something sucks when they thought it sucked. He wanted people to be abrasive and try to shoot down other people's ideas on the team. When I went to Jennifer Doudna's lab, she did it differently. She said, I like the idea of creative tension, but I actually want people to be collegial and collaborative. I want them to have each other's back. I don't want them to have their elbows out or stabbing each other in the back. So every time she brought on a postdoc into her lab or a person into one of her companies, they met everybody else. They sat around and they talked. And then they would discuss, is this a good fit? Will this person fit in? And there's no 
one right way to do it. I know how I did it when I built teams Mm -hmm. at CNN Mm -hmm. and Time. I know how Ben Franklin helped do it when he built a team of founders for this nation. But I think that's why biography and narrative Mm -hmm. history are useful, because you learn that the way that Gordon Moore and Bob Noyce were going to do it at Intel is different than the way Steve Jobs did. When we come back, Walter and I dig into the ethics of gene editing and the sometimes surprisingly personal nature of biography. So Walter's first big idea is that playful curiosity can lead to breakthroughs. But for those breakthroughs to make a difference, you need to let collaboration and a healthy competition fuel the process. That was Walter's second big idea. Now in big idea number three, he says all the geniuses he's written about have known how to connect tech to the humanities. There's a moral component to all of this. It's bigger than just making money and making gadgets. Jennifer Doudna, after she cracked the code and was able to create this gene editing technology, she has a nightmare. And the nightmare, she's brought into a room by somebody who wants to figure out how to use this technology. And the person looks up and it's Adolf Hitler. And so Jennifer Doudna decides that she's going to dedicate the next few years of her life gathering scientists from around the world to have some rules in place, some guidelines saying, when do we edit our genes and when don't we? Should we make inheritable edits to unborn children? Uh, When should we stop that? When should we use it to fight diseases? And when should we use it to enhance our children, like make our children taller or smarter? or have a hair color that we want, or have bigger muscle mass. All these things are the moral issues we are gonna have to face in the next 20 years. And by we, I mean you and me. We can't leave this to the scientists and the politicians. When scientists started fighting the coronavirus and they started sharing their intellectual property, and when they started worrying about the morality of biotech and genetic engineering, That's when they reminded themselves and future generations that research science is a noble pursuit. You know, when I asked Steve Jobs at the end of his life, what was, you know, how was he going to be remembered? What was his legacy? He said, life is like a river. And I used to think, you know, your legacy is what you got to take out of the river, all the things you made and acquired and, you know, all the goodies you got, all the things you learned. But now I realize he said, That life is about what you get to put into the river. The ideas that you get to contribute for future generations. The products you make, they'll make other people's hearts sing. That's what people like Jennifer Doudna do too. There they are creating the technologies that will help humanity. And even though they sometimes do it for prizes and for patents, in the end, a person like Jennifer Doudna And a person like anybody who wants to follow in her footsteps, whether it be in medicine and bioscience or in any particular field, it's not, as some graduation speeches say, about following your passion. Everybody's got a silly little passion. Anybody can follow their passion. It's about connecting your passion to something larger than yourselves. That's what everybody I wrote about did, from Steve Jobs to Ben Franklin to Albert Einstein, to Leonardo da Vinci, and now to Jennifer Doudna, who has created tools that will make us healthier, make our children safer, and will help build a better human race. 
My recollection is that Steve Jobs would actually put up a slide at the end of some of his presentations with road signs at the intersection of humanities and science, right? And that's, that's where he saw the sort of the genius of, of Apple was being able to cross those two lines. I think that came originally from Edwin Land of Polaroid. Is that right? Yeah. Steve Jobs said that when he was young, he talked to Edwin Land of Polaroid. And Steve said, you know, I'm interested in the humanities. I love calligraphy and art and dance and history. But I also am interested in technology. I'm interested in computers. And Edwin Land said, if you can stand at that intersection where our technologies connect to our humanity, that's where the value is added. But I would add, it's not just about the value of added, it's about the morality of it. Sometimes we develop technologies, whether it be social media like Twitter and Facebook or atom bombs, where we don't think through the rules of how we should use it to help humanity soon enough, and sometimes it gets a bit out of hand. That's why Jennifer Doudna's humanistic instincts to pursue the moral questions even before we've uh, implemented some of these technologies she's discovered is so important in this book, because I want readers to go hand in hand and say, all right, I'm thinking alongside her. We're going to figure this out together. Well, and boy, never has that priority on humanity been more important than with this biotech revolution. I mean, I think many of us have been concerned about artificial intelligence and where that might lead, but boy, this almost feels more more proximate right now. The sense that, that CRISPR can lead not only to all kinds of immediate, or not immediate, but, but near-term wonderful outcomes of curing diseases, which is already starting to happen, right? But also we have Vladimir Putin talking about you know, breeding warriors who, who feel no fear, right? So, so does, it, does this scare you? Do you think that, that, you think that we should be alarmed? Well, first of all, I think we should be thrilled and embrace the good that this technology can do. Because sometimes I'll be talking about, here's what I fear, and then I get emails, mm-hmm. and I, mm-hmm. I get maybe 20 a day now. And Jennifer mm-hmm. always gets it when she gives a talk, which is somebody will come up and say, here's a picture of my nine-year-old uh, grandson, or here's a picture of my 12-year-old daughter, and he or she has this rare genetic disease, or has sickle cell, or Tay-Sachs, or Huntington's, and they say she's going to die in three years, or whatever. Can you save her? Can you get me in touch with Jennifer? And so I don't think we want to become so reflexively anti-technology and anti-science that we don't start by saying, this is going to help us conquer virus pandemics, horrible genetic diseases, Mm -hmm. and cancer. But yes, I also think we have to worry about two big issues. One is that in enhancing our children, we don't want to let the rich buy better genes for their kids than... Uh, other people, and we'll get into Brave New World, a Gattaca, where there'll be a, a genetically enhanced elite. So that's something that's a policy issue that we have to get our heads around. It's not about the technology. And we also have to worry about editing out the diversity of the human species. I mean, if uh, we all could go, uh, when we're going to be parents, to a genetic uh, clinic with a genetic supermarket shopping list and say, okay, I want my kid to be, you know, this tall and this is the hair color I want and this is 
the muscle mass I want, then we might find ourselves editing out the beautiful diversity that makes the species so creative, but also helps the species survive by having that diversity. There's a wonderful ethical thinker in my book named David Sanchez, and he's 17 years old. He loves playing basketball, Mm -hmm. except for when he doubles over in pain because he's got sickle cell. And they say to him at one point, we can edit your genes maybe in the next few years so that your children will not have sickle cell and nor will their children. And of course, he says, that's great. That would be wonderful. But then he pauses and says, but I'm not sure. Maybe that should be up to the child after the child is born. They say, why? And he says, well, sickle cell taught me persistence. It taught me how to get up off the floor. It taught me character. It taught me empathy for other people. And I thought, wow, that's smart to know that sometimes our adversities help forge our character. But then I'd go back to him later. And I said, you really wouldn't want to edit this out in your children? He said, no. Now that I think about it more, I would want my children to be edited not to have sickle cell anemia. And I said, well, what about empathy? He said, I try to teach them empathy, but I don't want them to go through the pain I went through. And that means there's not an easy answer here. My book doesn't end with, here's the 12 answers to what we should do. It ends with people having first thoughts, second thoughts, and third thoughts, just like Jennifer Doudna did, just like I did, just like David Sanchez did, and just like I hope each reader will, because we are not going to get the solutions right now, but we're going to start going step by step, hopefully, to the right place. Well, it's fascinating, and, and these conversations in the decades to come really get to some of these core questions about what it is to be human and what we value as humans. And, you know, when you think about the complexity of, for instance, depression, uh, which all of us can experience sometimes, you know, s- some people uh, experience as a, as a more severe affliction, but also being maybe sometimes connected to experiencing the sublime beauty of the world, right? I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, of kind of double-edged elements to our nature. And also, I think the power to forget, which I'm pretty good at, uh, is, is, maybe, is maybe part of what enables us to edit a kind of personal narrative <laughs> that, that makes life pleasant and, uh, and enjoyable. As you say, be careful of what you wish for. Because, yeah, if we make our memories much better, we'll all be a lot more resentful. I'm, like you, blessed with a bad memory. So I (laughs) tend to like everybody I've ever met because I forget the bad things they may have done. But likewise, and this is more serious, and you talk about depression. Yes, we all fight either, you know, depressions or anxieties or sometimes more seriously, bipolar or schizophrenia. If you look at the great writers, and there have been many studies, Mm, Nancy Andreasen did one, you know, whether it's Hemingway, you know, or others, they tend to face these psychological challenges. Uh, likewise, a great artist like Van Gogh, you know, is bipolar or schizophrenic. Now, we don't want our children or ourselves or our family members to have to suffer through the excruciating pain mm. that severe depression or bipolar or schizophrenia can cause. But as we edit those out of our species a couple decades from now, or at least the disposition towards depression or schizophrenia, uh, we could lose some things as a species. Well, it's, it's, we, we clearly will not uh, be able to um, figure it all out today. But, 
but it is it is truly astounding what what is coming down the pike. And in terms of what's possible, you make reference to the possibility of not only enhancing muscle mass and memory and intelligence, but also potentially hearing different frequencies, seeing infrared light. Right. I mean, there's a the range of of human modifications that are that are possible are, are are pretty astounding. Well, yes, and that's a line that I think we shouldn't cross for a while, and we should be cautious about. Because if you're fixing something like a, a gene for a sickle cell, you're turning the patient into somebody who is typical of you know most people in our species. When you yeah. start editing in new powers such as the ability to see infrared light or to hear different frequencies or not to feel pain, uh, that's when you're really, really messing with Mother Nature. Those are things that I hope it's our grandchildren will have to decide, but it's still useful to start the conversation now and to understand these things now because we have to look down the road as we figure out how are we going to go down this slope and how are we going to do it so it's less slippery? We can do it step by step, hand in hand. Indeed. Well, if our, if our grandchildren turn all of their children into geniuses, it may be, a, it may be tougher for biographers <laughs> to figure out which, which Einstein to choose. <laughs> It'll be tougher too for, I don't know, for sports to say, are we going to give the award to the athlete or to the genetic engineer who gave them more oxygen carrying blood cells? Right, exactly. It's sponsored by, yeah, the, the company. Well, uh, Walter, you're, in conclusion, uh, in my in my research uh, preceding this conversation, I was so delighted to happen upon an article that your wife wrote for Airmail, <laughs> in which she said all sorts of wonderful things. Endless cocktail conversation is Walter's drug of choice. That was one of my favorites. But she says that your daughter's view was that in writing about Franklin, you were writing about yourself, an upwardly mobile newspaper man interested in science and diplomacy. In writing about Einstein, you were writing about your father, a friendly, distracted engineer with a strong humanistic streak. And meanwhile, Steve Jobs, your wife writes, reminds you of your daughter, Betsy, a smart, fairly headstrong, tech-loving geek. And with Jennifer Doudna, the subject of your latest book was writing about your wife, smart, sensible, and persistent. Do you have enough family members to keep writing uh, uh, bi biographies? No, I don't know what I'm going to do next. And people always say, what are you going to write about next? I'm a little bit stymied on that, uh, still thinking through ideas. But uh, you're right. I'm going to have to figure out, as Emerson said, all biography is autobiography in some ways. So I'm going to have to connect it to being autobiographical. But one thing I will say is all the people I write about, and I hope I feel it in myself, is that not only do we have curiosity, but curiosity about all sorts of fields, like Leonardo, from art to anatomy to music mm -hmm. to math to zoology. And so the person I write about next will have a wide-ranging curiosity and try to understand everything you can about everything that's knowable. Well, one of the reasons that, that I find you fascinating, Walter, is that you've straddled both uh, a, you know, careers in building things and a career as a writer. And I've, I've, in my own life, I found myself torn between building businesses, which is most of what I've done, and uh, a desire to, uh, to write books, which I think may be more in the next chapter 
of my life. But do you think that's that's a permanent departure for you uh, away from uh, building organizations and towards writing books? Or how do you think about that? Well, first of all, let me talk about you, Rufus, which is, yes, you're building companies, but with this very podcast, you're engaging in the most recent human form of writing and communication, which is interactive uh, podcasts and uh, things that you do with the next big idea. So I consider you as literary as Homer or as uh, Hemingway or myself uh, in coming up with new ways to express ourselves and to communicate. And as for me, no, I, I still love organizations. I still love business. I love teaching at Tulane, but I also love creating businesses in my hometown of New Orleans and helping uh, with what we have something called Idea Village, where we nurture startups. Because I think people who can take big ideas and execute on them and turn them into startups are the people who really do push us forward. I mean, vision without execution is hallucination. And so it helps not just to be a visionary, to be, to be somebody who says, okay, let's, let, let's try to make this thing work. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I do have a, a feeling that the conversations, this kind of podcasting revolution that's happening, or, or, or at least a surge of interest in this, in, in listening to people have conversations, is a beautiful kind of return to where we started, right? Which was that, you know, uh, thoughts were spoken before they were written. And, uh, and there are so many layers of communication, I think, in the, in the human voice. And, and I, think it's a, I think it's a wonderful development. And we really appreciate your sharing your voice with us today. And let me say that ever since we've been doing that, the basic way to approach it is to say, let me tell you a story. Whether you're sitting around the fire in front of the cave or doing a podcast, that's the way we convey lessons. Well, Walter, again, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it was just, just wonderful. And we're, uh, we're going to do our best to make sure that uh, as many people as possible learn about your wonderful book. And maybe somebody puts it on, on a, a daughter's bed or a son's bed. And uh, we create a, a few more scientists, but scientists with a humanistic side. I really appreciate that, Rufus. I really do. Thanks for helping there. Would you like to hear two more big ideas from The Code Breaker? Download the Next Big Idea app and check out Walter's Book Bite, which includes not three, but five big ideas. And why stop there? In our app, you'll also find 12-minute audio summaries of groundbreaking new books, Zoom discussions with your favorite authors, and mind-blowing e-courses. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. Next week, I'll be handing over hosting duties to one of our incredible curators, Adam Grant. He'll be chatting with anthropologist James Sussman about the years he spent living with Bushman hunter-gatherers, why he only works three hours a day, and his new book, Work, A Deep History from the Stone Age to the Age of Robots. Special thanks to Walter Isaacson. Grab a copy of The Code Breaker at your favorite local bookstore or in the Next Big Idea app. We make our curiosity useful every week on this show thanks to our executive producers, Caleb Bissinger and Michael Kovnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Mike Toda. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.